There you go. Is there another one? I thought there was going to be another little bing bing. No. I think I hear do. I hear the two beeps on my end. Maybe okay. you only hear one. I just heard one. Well, hey, welcome to uh, Hey All You Zombies. Uh, it's an hour or so of, usually we end up talking, not surprisingly, about The Walking Dead uh, quite a bit. I missed it this week, and it was killing me. In fact, I was hosting a party at the Drake Hotel here in Toronto during the Oscars, uh, which, of course, conflicts with The Walking Dead. And I was surprised they, they showed a new episode, actually, during the, uh, the Oscars this year, because uh, in Canada, the Oscars pulled in 6.1 million people that's like a fifth of the population and we're watching the Oscars. So it struck me as odd that they would have another uh, something competing, a fresh episode of The Walking Dead opposite that. Having said that, it mostly just because I'm bitter that I missed it, but I will catch up to it. I just haven't had a chance to yet. So there'll be very little Walking Dead conversation on the show this week. Well, and, and my name's Chris Abel, and I am rapidly, in my mind, trying to strategize a way that we can talk about The Walking Dead. Right. That, that includes your, yourself and others who may have not seen the latest episode. Because right. I, I have heard from people who have been watching our last ep uh, episode but have not seen the latest Walking Dead. So, you know, I, I think we can do this. I think we can talk okay. about I'm this ready to talk. in a way that, yeah. We can have your valuable input. That's right. The, the future, Richard Krause. I, I'm, I'm, I'm now, uh, you know, doing some timey wimey Doctor Who Tardis stuff. I'm going to have right. future Richard Krause, who has, Turn who is going to act like you've seen it. Turn some dials and then make me go into the future or the past or wherever it is that I need to that be. That kind of thing, or maybe a little bit of, of Darren Brown hypnosis. Oh. Are you are you a fan of Darren Brown? Uh, I don't know Darren Brown. Oh, well, hey, I'll take care of that. <laughs> the last hypnotist that I knew, really, or that I'd seen, uh, that I recall, and it was Ravine. Do you remember Ravine? Ravine. R Ravine was, when I was a kid, Ravine was called, I think his name was Ravine the Impossibleist. Okay. And, yeah, Ravine the Impossibleist. And he used to uh, tour often. I grew up in Nova Scotia, and he toured... Uh, in and around Nova Scotia often, and he would hypnotize people. And I went up on stage uh, once, and it didn't take. I don't know why, uh, but I'll show you a picture of Ravine here. Anyone who grew up in the 70s, and I, I, he wasn't from Nova Scotia. I think he was American, but I think he just had a, a, found a, a lot of people there that he was able to, uh, to uh, nice. control. But that's uh, Stop Smoking and Overeating with Ravine. These were albums that you could buy. I remember he would sell these at his shows. And, um, and I loved Ravine. And I was so disappointed. I remember going up on stage and not having it take, you know, not being able to, oh, this is a good one too. Let me show you this. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> thought about Ravine in a long time, but check out this picture of Ravine the Impossibleist. Let me find it. Oh. Um, but uh, but he's the last one. There you go. Yeah. That's what I remember. This sort of you know Mistopheles beard and the and the very dramatic kind of uh, way. He was really yeah. old school. But yeah, yeah, that's Ravine for you right there. Well, and it's it's not entirely how do I put it? Uh, it's a bit fraudulent, I think, to sell albums that are going to claim to just by voice alone cause people to stop smoking. But. Right. I don't know. But um, anyways, uh, there's, there's a guy named Darren Brown uh, over in the UK. And he is a mentalist, I think. Initially, when he first came on the scene, there were a few people that were a little wary of him because he didn't make it explicitly clear that what he was doing was a trick. Now he does. He, he makes it very clear that he doesn't have magical powers. He's just 
using some basic phenomena that's part of human psychology to perform uh, some wild stunts. And he's done some amazing stuff. But I, I'm mentioning him to you because you're going to be uh, reviewing a movie by Danny Boyle in the near future called Trance. Yeah, yeah. And the basic premise about that is that whether or not someone could be hypnotized to then become a sleeper agent and go off and assassinate somebody. And Darren Brown did an entire stunt where he hypnotized somebody to perform exactly that, except replace the gun. The person who was hypnotized thought they were being given a real gun. Instead, he gave them a squirt gun. Right. And it was to, to demonstrate whether or not that could be uh, performed or not. So I, I'll have to connect you up with that footage, and you can yeah, check no, it out. Yeah, I'd like to see that. I've just looked up Ravine here. Now, he was Australian. Ah, okay. Uh, and he was a stage hypnotist, or it says it is a stage hypnotist, an illusionist who performed mainly in Canada and particularly in Atlantic Canada, which is why uh, I would have seen him um, so often. And it says here that um, uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, he was the basis for a parody SNL commercial about a hypnotist who gets audience members exiting the theater to robotically drone, it was much better than Cats. I would see it again and again to a reporter. Um, and he's been on the late night show with uh, David Letterman. And uh, Norm MacDonald, no, I'm sorry, he hasn't been on. Norm MacDonald revealed on the David Letterman show that he used to go see Ravine when he was a teenager. Gotcha. Okay. Ravine the Impossibilist. Ravine the Impossibilist. Yes. All right, I'll have to check him out. Well, uh, some of the stuff that D Darren Brown is doing, very, very fascinating. Uh, and I know that you're very interested in this particular sort of area. Uh, and Darren Brown and, and Teller, they're, they're like this. They actually conspire a lot in a lot of things. So I think you'll be very interested in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we'll get uh, some videos up on the website. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I guess back to the, the Walking Dead because I think I got it all figured out now. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> so here's what I'll do. Uh, you know, in a non-spoilerish kind of way, I can tell you that uh, the latest episode um, wasn't an action-packed episode. There was no no. This is what I hear. Yep. There was no major changes in terms of cast or personnel. It, uh, but at the same time, it wasn't a talkie. We're just kind of, you know, setting things up for something else. There were some significant stuff. And I'd say the main focus of this episode was in trying to um, get two main characters kind of back up to where they should be. You've got Rick, who has been, you know, off on a bit of a staycation in his mind lately. Uh, <laughs> where he, in this episode, he starts to take the point of allowing other people in the group to kind of make decisions for the right. group instead of he himself having to carry all the weight of the responsibility. And this is something that he's kind of pushed a little bit to do by his son, Carl. And, and revealing that is not a big thing because they actually showed a bit of that uh, last week. Right. But then the, the more important part of the episode has to do with Andrea. Uh, and it's about finally getting to the point where Andrew begins to take whatever illusion, whatever sheep's wool that she's had in front of her eyes and start to see the situation for what it really is. Hmm. That was a long time coming. Yeah. And, and that's what I, I sort of am curious in terms of how you, how you feel about that. Um, for me, it's, it's odd. Uh, you often talk about how what makes the walking dead so special is that it creates characters that we learn to care about, but I argue that it, there are two characters that people have a really hard time caring about. You know, Andrea and Rick are two characters that I always hear from people that just 
really don't connect to. The, 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 where we people tend to invest themselves is with characters that are on the, um, on the outside, like Daryl, for example, or Michonne, or right. Carol, or you know, all the others outside. But those two main characters have been problematic and that they're not really desirable you know, characters to kind of follow along. No, and well, it's interesting. And, and maybe it's as simple as in the case of Rick, uh, he's the leader. And, you know, you sort of, you follow the leader, but you don't, you maybe not necessarily become emotionally invested in him. His role is fairly straightforward in terms of what he does. And they've tried to humanize him a little bit, I guess, with all the Lori stuff that's happened. But, on the, you know, by humanizing him, they've just made him mentally ill. And I'm not sure that, you know, it, it, like cracking under this enormous pressure that he's under. And I'm not sure uh, if that was exactly the way that I might have approached it. It, it, it sometimes it seems and I, I said this in the last podcast sometimes it seems particularly when he's uh, you know chasing after these visions of his his dead wife uh, that it's just a, an excuse to get him to do something that he wouldn't normally do leave the compound wide open or something like that and and so I'm not sure I maybe Rick isn't the character I mean he's not a character that I've ever particularly um, uh, been been enchanted with certainly, and I think you know it's unusual because I love the show, and he's been on it since the very first episode. He's been on more episodes than anybody probably, but um, he's not uh, he's not my favorite character. No, he's and he should be. He is the yeah. guy. He's the one that you woke up to and sort of saw this altered reality from that bed in the hospital. But uh, but maybe it's because he uh, is the one that that. Uh, acts less like a human uh, than the rest of them in the sense that, you know, he's the one that has to make these really tough decisions. He's the one that says, yeah, we're just going to, we're going to kill somebody. He doesn't often appear to be that compassionate. And maybe that's why we don't uh, relate to him as much. Right. And I think part of it is it's just too easy uh, up until now to, to get people to be uh, invested in Rick because a, he was a sheriff uh, B, because he had a wife, he, he had a, a child that he was searching for. There was lots of reasons to sort of like Rick, mainly because of the situation that he was in, not necessarily because of the guy that he is. Right. And that's something that I think is a big challenge for those who are putting together the show, is to say, okay, well, we have to get people to like this guy, but we have to do so based on the person that he is, yeah. rather than, hey, he's a sheriff, or rather than he's right. in a position to make decisions, or rather, you know, all those other things. I think the one change I'd like to see with Rick is that up until till now, he has been a decision maker, yeah. but he hasn't been much of a planner. Right, right. Right? Like, well, and, you know, it's only been in situations where he's had to react. I mean, there's no, I mean, because they don't know really what's beyond, you know, the, 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 their immediate surroundings. They don't really know what else is out there, you know. No. So hard to make long-term plans when you don't know if a mile away there's a wild zombie war raging, you know? But even by contrast, you take a look at the governor. Uh, he may be a villain, but he is a very effective planner. He is someone who knows how to think about a situation, to to put things in motion. Uh, the whole thing that happened at the, the prison with the, that 
blockbuster episode of, of being able to Trojan horse a, a van full of zombies in. That's planning. That's organization. And that's not something that we've seen from Rick. And that kind of activity is really important in terms of getting an audience to engage because it allows them to say, okay, you, uh, here, get into my head and let's talk about things. Let's make things better rather than just standing there almost like in judgment and making snap decisions and then having to try to justify them after the fact is, is kind of a tough situation to be in. It is. I mean, and, and I mean, the, the characters, it's interesting because Daryl, when we first met him, would not have been, uh, I don't think, anyone's choice of a character. Like, I, I just I just kept waiting for the episode where he got killed because you just assumed that he was one of the red shirts. You know, he was one of those guys that, that is going to go early on and will go, oh, yeah, remember that guy with the bow and arrow? You know, but that was it. But they, they've done more than that. They, they've given him a character arc. And... And like a real, a huge character arc, like a 180 or three, yeah, well, not 360, but 180 character arc. Whereas Rick, they haven't. So maybe that's it. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure why I don't care about Rick that much, well, even though he's ostensibly the star of the show. And that's what I guess was important about this past episode is that you start to see character arcs develop for those two key characters. Mm -hmm. For Rick now uh, getting to a point where others can kind of, you know, stand up and make decisions and he can right. kind of watch and sort of gain perspective and hopefully he'll come back and hopefully he'll be Rick the Planner. But yeah. also this character arc that has been long coming. And that's the problem with Andrea. It's like we've all, you know, the audience is well ahead of where Andrea is. And that's a horrible thing to do to an audience. We don't like to be uh, ahead of the, the the storyteller. We want to, you know, be the storyteller to be leading us along. Right. So Although, you know, Hitchcock has that thing where you put the bomb under the table and you show the audience the bomb under the table. And then the longer people sit at that table talking, the audience starts to get more tense and more tense and more tense because they know that bomb eventually is going to go off. Sure. But, but because they know it's there. They're one step ahead of the characters. But they don't actually know what the key result is going to be. Right. I think it's a case of, um, at Pixar, they say that it's important that you give people one plus one, but let them figure out two. Hmm. Um, and I think that in this case, unfortunately, we already know what the, the answer is. You know, as Andrea starts to wake up to her situation, and it's horrible because it's not a case that she didn't know. And that's what really makes her an unlikable person is because all along this time, you know that there's a, a little voice in the back of her head that is telling her that the governor is not a nice person, telling her that this situation is not right and horrible things are happening. And she's just kind of denying it to herself. And, and there's a really great moment in the episode where Michonne kind of confronts her. And, and asks her to think why that that is. Although she suggests it not in a very nice, polite <laughs> kind yeah. of fashion, but yeah, well, see, I, I mean, I, I think with her, I, it's not that I've uh, that that I didn't think that she was a nice person. I, I wondered realistically. Um, well, I, I you know, well, I, I guess how I feel about her really is. I, I thought, well, what would you do? You know, what would you see? So you come to this place. And it's it's um, orderly. It seems like Mayberry almost, considering what happens, you know, just outside its borders. And and you know, for once you have something that feels a little bit normal. Maybe you'd overlook a couple of things after being through everything that you've been through. Okay, so here's what I would argue. <clears throat> you've got the, the the situation goes beyond that because you have Michonne all bugged out. 
her instincts are on fire. She says, we got to get out of here. There's, there's horrible stuff. Da, 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 da. And she makes the decision to leave. And so now you've got this dilemma that Andrea was in where she can either stay or she can leave with, with Michonne, who compared to everybody else in that town, she knows who Michonne is. They've been together for a long time. They've, they've survived with each other. That's the one person that she is guaranteed she can trust that will have her back. These new people, she doesn't really know. Yeah. And so I would argue that if it really is this well-orderly, safe little tiny town, then there should be no problem for you to come back a week later. Right. Right. But right. if you stay right. and it turns out to be a bit of a nightmare, then you're trapped. Well, no, I, I mean, I get that. <clears throat> I, I, I get that. But I, I, you know, listen, they always say, I, I, well, I had a friend of mine who had this theory for a long time that if you want to start a world war, you don't uh, start assassinating people. You don't do, you take away people's cable. That's what you do. You take away their creature comforts, right? You take away stuff that everyone's sort of like become accustomed to having. And all of a sudden, that's what builds the unrest. The opposite is true here. He's given them all that. The governor's given them the cable. And in return for having the cable, metaphorically mm -hmm. speaking, you uh, are expected to, you know, not wander around and not leave the compound and not, you know, do all that. And so, I mean, I, 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 I think we... we part ways here on our feelings about Andrea in, in the sense of why she stuck around. Right. Well, in this episode, we're going to see the, it's an entire process of as she sort of comes to a point where she's finally going to accept how things are and, and tries to make a decision as to what she's going to do about it. And it's an elaborate process because it really does involve her having to go off and, and see just about everybody that we know and having a conversation before she can kind of get all the pieces of the puzzle to finally not con not put together the picture that everybody else can see, but to finally, I think, confront herself and say, look, you know, you've allowed this to go too long for too far uh, and it's time to finally make up your decision as to where your, your loyalty stands. So. Well, I wonder about this, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see, um, as the cast fluctuates, people get killed and new people come on and stuff. I'm wondering if there is a, if there's an upper limit as to how many people we will have to get to know, or if they will always try and keep it at a fairly uh, regular um, amount of characters, because I'm sure somewhere there's a big book of rules, of Hollywood rules for television saying, you know what, if you have more than 11 characters, nobody cares. People stop caring. Or, they, you know, it's too many. The people will find it too confusing. And I wonder if every now and again you have to have Andrea come back and sort of meet everybody, say hello, get you know, show us everyone so it reminds the audience who's where and what's going on. It's, a, it's an easy way to sort of do an update so that the audience feels like they're really on board in a well, weekly television. I mean, what I find with uh, most television shows that I watch is that they actually increase the cast gradually over time. So that right. you may start off with a show that only has six characters, but by the time you get to the fifth season, there's usually about 14. And I often wonder about the poor actors who may have started off, you know, being on a show for about 15 to 20 minutes and then, you know, at the height of their fame, only appearing for two and a half or just being that person that's you know, on a phone call, and whether or not they get paid accordingly. Oh, <laughs> say, as long as that paycheck doesn't go down, I'm sure that there's a lot of them that don't care that much. But, you know. No. But, you know, you have to wonder about, like, uh, the guy that plays Merle. You know, he disappears for a season, then comes back, and, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, I wonder about that guy. Did yeah, and... and haircut for the entire year he was off? 
that's it exactly. I mean, you, you, you agree to play sort of this hostile redneck and dress accordingly, and then you have to kind of maintain that look <laughs> to come back another season, whether there's any kind of financial compensation for that. I don't, I don't know, you know. But uh, uh, thankfully there was – it's funny, um, you know, here I am watching the Oscars, and I half expect to flip over and see uh, Lori because she's dressed for the Oscars. That's the funny part of it. You know, I expect her to be – giving an acceptance speech or, yes. you know, presenting an award to somebody on the show. That's right. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. Rick in the audience having a breakdown watching her, running towards the stage, pushing George Clooney out of the way. <laughs> well, the other cool thing I liked about this episode was they had some solid moments where you had characters get together and really start to kind of say things that are, are significant or have emotional impact to them, rather than it just being um, – you know, two characters kind of saying something for the, the sake of creating conflict or creating an emotional kind of an appeal. You have people who are saying things that, that, that hold a certain resonance. It's one thing that is there in the original comic book is that you have people that will say things and you go, wow, you know. Um, there's a, a moment in the comic where um, Andrea says to Rick, you know, it's, it's not your fault when somebody dies. It's your fault when somebody lives. That's been on the show, too, where words like you know, sort of sentiment close to that has been on yeah. the show as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it, it, the, the thing that I thought was great about this episode was that you'd have people get together and they would say stuff like that with that succinctness, with that kind of impact. And I thought, right. that's good. That's that's what we need. <laughs> we need yeah. to hear, you know, somebody sort of say something. It's almost in a Shakespearean sense where you can have a situation happening, but every now and then you need to have a character come up and just say it right. in order to get it out there and kind of – uh, get you to think about it. So I, I thought that was very good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the show uh, certainly doesn't need to go back to being the talking dead like it was in the second episode. But I think you also have to be care careful because no matter how cool it is when you go on a killing zombie or a zombie killing rampage, the show can't be just that. You yeah. know, you have to find a, a, a happy balance. The first half of the of the third season was a lot of zombie killing. Now, there were real high moments in there as well. But I don't mind a little uh, every now and again, like The Sopranos. There'd be episodes when really nothing much happened. And then the next one, some crazy things would happen. And, and you sort of got used to the ebb and flow of it. And I think that could happen here as well. Well, I've noticed that they seem to try to have one zombie kill of the week in every yeah. episode, right? I mean, there was that, uh, as we said the last episode, there was that creative use of a hatchback backdoor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, in this past episode, you're going to see um, one zombie get some rather interesting dental work. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> Something to look forward to. I enjoy that. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll catch up with it. I will certainly, by the time we meet again, I will have this and another episode under my belt. So there'll be lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. That very, very cool. Uh, so anything happening in the world of Krauss? Uh Well, uh, it's all been Oscars all the time over here. Uh, you know, in, in my line of work, uh, the Oscars, you know, become the thing for a, a week or so uh, very intensively. And then the months leading up to that, I'm just sort of expected to, you know, crunch data and do all that kind of stuff. And last year, I got 23 out of 24 right. This year, it was a little, uh, it was a little less than that. Starting with Christoph Waltz, the first award they give out, I got wrong, and I kind of threw my uh, ballot in the air and didn't really pay attention. After that, later on, I think I was 17 out of 21 this year. 
of the 21 categories that I chose. I got 17 of them right. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, uh, you know, there's been a, a great deal of discussion about Seth MacFarlane, whether or not he was an appropriate host, whether or not he did the job properly. And, you know, coming at it from a couple of different viewpoints, uh, ratings-wise, he uh, knocked it out of the park. Ratings were up uh, all over. Um, in Canada, 6.1 million people watched it. It's about, a, you know, a fifth or I don't know what our population is. It's like a sixth of our population tuned in to watch the Academy Awards. And in the overall, like that crazy high... Uh, lusted after demographic of 18 to 34 year old males, it was up 34%. Now, probably most of them tuned out when Barbara Streisand started singing, but beyond that, uh, the, it was it was huge. The ratings were enormous, and uh, so he did the job there. Now, there's been just a, a huge amount of talk about how you know, a he wasn't funny. People didn't think he was particularly funny. I sat uh, in a room at the Drake Hotel in the lobby. We had hundreds of people there. Um, you know, people drinking, having a good time, excited to see the Academy Awards, and they enjoyed the show. I mean, and you know, your eyes don't, or your 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 eyes and ears don't lie. When people were laughing, so I will. Uh, uh, there, there was a reasonable cross section of people, although it skewed a little younger. Although there was a ninety-year-old woman there who stayed all night long, which I thought was awesome. She was amazing, taking pictures with everybody, and she wore sunglasses at one point. It was all like it was awesome. Um, but, uh, but you know, they all seem to enjoy uh, the job that Seth did. I thought that he was funny. And I don't buy, uh, you know, um, the, the criticisms that have been thrown out there, like the, the boob song uh, was really degrading to women. I think it's kind of quite the opposite. And I know I'm an old man sitting here talking about this. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, I guess. But see, what I thought he was doing was pointing out uh, the the kind of inequities that women so frequently so frequently are required to take off their clothes in movies to uh, you know have the same kind of impact that maybe their male counterparts do now you know sh for sure uh, Matthew McConaughey and I don't know who else you know Channing Tatum you know they they have a tendency to strip down every now and again but it's far more prevalent for women to to get naked on screen and, and to be shown and sort of showcased in a way that men aren't. I get that. I think that he was kind of in a very uh, public and and uh, attempting to be amusing way uh, saying, uh, making a, a kind of subversive statement about that in front of all the people that do it, in front of producers and directors and the sort of the, the creme de la creme of Hollywood, I think he was giving them a big kind of like, you know, up yours and saying, you know, think about this a little bit. Think about what you're doing. So, I don't know, that's my take on it. Now, whether or not, whether or not, uh, I know there was a, a long article on uh, Vulture uh, uh, about this. I'll just see if I can find it quickly, um, about how anti-feminist uh, he was and misogynistic. And, you know, I mean, I, I didn't see it as much. I, I would like to think that a lot of what he did was, um, was uh, here we go, on Vulture.com, Why Seth MacFarlane's Misogyny Matters, written by uh, Margaret Lyons. 
And it says, Seth MacFarlane made a whole bunch of sexist, reductive jokes at the Oscars last night. It's frustrating enough to know that 77% of the Academy voters are male or to watch 30 men and nine women collect awards last night. But MacFarlane's boob song, the needless sexualization of a little girl, and the relentless commentary about how women look reinforced over and over that women somehow don't belong. And, you know, I, I think that while he very possibly... Uh, didn't choose his words carefully. I don't know really how else to put it. That the message was somehow different than the surface message. Gotcha. Well, you know, um, I enjoyed the broadcast, um, but in terms of his humor, I think that there were a lot of bad choices in in terms of what he did, and not because the stuff was necessarily not funny, but that it would be more appropriate on an episode of Family Guy than it would be on the Oscars. I think that when you run the risk of having boob songs like that, then you, you, you start to slowly erode the sense of class that the Academy Awards is supposed to have. Right. Well, no, I get that. And listen, I, you know, a lot of people have pointed that out. You know, yeah. what happened? Well, what happened is nobody watched. I mean, it's not that nobody watched. The, the Academy Awards still gets a lot of people. 47 million people watched it in the United States. I mean, it's a lot of people that watch this show still. But um, the ratings were down, you know, and, the, and it's been no secret that the Academy has tried for the last number of years to figure out how to get younger viewers. Look, when I was younger... Um, it was just sort of a thing. You always watched the Academy Awards. When I was 18, I never missed one. 18, 19, 20 years old, it was always, it was fun, you know. You, but now I don't think that people care as much. And I think that there's a lot of things that, that go into that. I think that there's award season burnout by the time the Academy Awards comes around because now there's a there's hundred award shows that come before it. I think that uh, uh, the, the movies, there's so many movies coming out these days, five movies every weekend that are opening, that just a lot of them get missed. People don't care as much. Um, the glamour of going to the movies has been eroded away. Um, I think that uh, um, people are, uh, because of the barrage of information, like, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm part of this cycle, you know, I've been predicting who's going to win for weeks now. And I think that people are just kind of done with it. By the time it actually happens, they're a little bit fed up with it. So the Academy's job is to try and keep this cash cow that they have going. They got to keep it on the road somehow. And, um, you know, it's not the, the staid, classy affair once that it once was, for sure. But these times that we live in are no longer the staid, classy times maybe that we once lived in. You know, and I think, you know, what they need to do is step into the modern era. I don't think they did it on Sunday night all the way, but I think that they took, uh, I, I think they took some uh, uh, baby steps towards creating a show that was a little bit more in step at the times. Now, some of the musical numbers I thought were, you know, there were too many of them. The show went half an hour too long, you know, people still think, you know, these endless lists of people that no one's ever heard of, uh, and, you know, that gets a little tired, but there's a, there's a way, I know that out there somewhere, there's a way to do this show so that it becomes interesting and topical again. I just don't know exactly what it is. Well, I, I guess my point is I, there were a lot of things that, uh, in terms of humor, that I thought was great, that, that joke, jokes that he did that I felt were funny, they pushed the envelope, they were appropriate towards the evening, though. So, for example, uh, you know, he stands up and says, our next presenter needs no introduction, and then leaves the, the stage. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, that was yeah. hilarious. 
uh, and out comes Meryl Streep, you know? Uh, that was beautiful. I thought that was really well done. And But then when he sits there and starts talking about the Von Trapp family and here they are, the singers, and it keeps going to the door, what the hell was that? That was just dumb, you know, that, that had no sense to it. Dumb. And, uh, you know, it was by way of introducing Christopher Plummer, who, of course, started the movie. But Plummer hates that movie, apparently. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. You know, he made it, a comment, it, you know, pick on somebody your own size. Yeah. He was not happy. No, he was. And I don't know that I would have been either in that situation. But, you know, it happened. I, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, there were certain lapses. Absolutely. There were lapses. Although, I did like that he has kind of a healthy disdain for the kind of like when he was talking about Argo and he said, you know, it's based on uh, uh, newly unclassified uh, information. In fact, that information was so classified, the Academy didn't even know who directed it or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. that was funny. It's a nice, a nice little jab. Uh-oh. I think we may have lost Mr. Krause. I'm not sure. Uh, it has. Uh, once again, um, this is Google+, and it relies on an internet connection coming from each of our, our um, homes and our, our home offices. And it would seem that Richard Krause is currently suffering a bit of an outage. It'll take him a moment, though. He should be back. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to keep on. Here he is. There. We lost everything there. For a you went blank. It was all gone. Um, I loved when he brought out Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas, and uh, he said, they're the, the children of Hollywood royalty. They've been around for so long that, of course, they can remember when there were cocaine trees as far as the eye could see in Hollywood. Yeah. And I thought that was quite funny. I mean, I, you know, I liked a lot of that stuff, um, but, you know, uh, again, the show has to be revamped to make it more of a show. He did something that hasn't been done in other years so often the Academy Awards looks to me like a show that they make for the audience in the room rather than a TV show. Seth MacFarlane knows about TV. He understands TV. So he made a television show that happened to be in front of a, of a very big live audience. Mm -hmm. And so I thought the show worked better as a television show as opposed to just a big live spectacle that happened to be filmed for television. I thought that worked better, you know, but... For sure, there were things to iron out. But maybe next year, you know, all they have to do is hire Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and, you know, just let them take it over. Yeah, well, they and, and I think that you can approach humor that uh, has disdain for the very institution that, and, and all the, the bloody millionaires that are in the audience. Um, but at the same time, I think there are different approaches. There's a, a difference between the frat boy humor that you have on a show like Family Guy and the frat boy humor you might have in a parody newspaper like The Onion. Right. In that there's a certain amount of intelligence in terms of the setup and delivery. Well, except for The Onion's Twitter account this year. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, you know, uh, generally... The, there, there's those two approaches, and you know um, Seth MacFarlane seemed to sort of venture between the two of them. What I did like about the show, though, was that unlike in the past years where they would try to get somebody who's the flavor of the week to come on and be a presenter, that you know, like I, I half expected this year that the James Bond 50 Years of James Bond might be presented by Justin Bieber, right. or they could have One Direction come out and talk about the best musical shows, right? But instead, they have Shirley Bassey. Come on and do Ghost Rider. Amazing, by the way. Yeah. Honestly, she's 125 years old, and she was unbelievable. I loved her. She played Glastonbury two years ago and blew the roof off. Really? 
Wow. Yeah, and and nobody understood that because, of course, people thought Shirley Bassey playing Glastonbury. You're talking about a youth crowd. They're not going to be, you know, with all the other shows and acts and comp- competition out there. Yeah. She, <laughs> the, the doors right off. I love her. I, I loved her. I thought she was amazing, and you could tell at first people were kind of like, "What?" And then she listened. The old finger. That voice came out of her. You're like, "Wow, dude, yeah. you're amazing." In fact, I would argue that it's funny because later on when Adele performed, and I like Adele, it didn't have the same um, work or energy to it. It was almost like she was singing in her her living room, the way that she was just kind of posing. Well, Shirley Bassey, I mean, you know, she's a nightclub performer, right? She knew that she had all that sort of very dramatic of of a different school. You know, and, and if you look, Nora Jones, when she sang, and uh, Adele, both just kind of swayed back and forth. There's nothing particularly electrifying about the performance. Also, from what I understand, the orchestra isn't in the room. No. Right? There, there are musicians on stage with it, but a big chunk of the orchestra is like a mile away in the Capitol Records building, right? And they're performing and it's being fed through. And I don't think that the, for particularly for Adele, I didn't think that the sound mix was particularly good. Adele's got a great voice and I think has a very strong voice, but uh, she seemed to get lost in that orchestra. And I think it was just a a, a mix situation. I think it was just badly mixed. Yeah, Bassey does have that uh, advantage of having a a voice that's just from beyond in terms of power. That If the mixer's falling asleep, don't matter. She'll just <laughs> go over anybody else. It's okay. Yeah. And even at her age, she's still doing that, which is astonishing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that they brought uh, Barbara Streisand in to do an homage to Marvin Hamlish. Those were really nice touches that, you know, typically in the past, they would turn into uh, uh, an effort to try to can uh, to, to cater to a youthful audience and misunderstand in an almost patronizing way. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, for as, as happy as everyone was to see Barbra Streisand, uh, for as thrilling as it is to hear her sing the single cheesiest moment. And, you know, God, I loved Marvin Hamlish. I, I met him once. I, I uh, The music for The Sting I listened to over and over again. I, you know, I have nothing but respect for him. He's passed on. When she uh, came out and she did that long sort of spoken bit, and she said, uh, you know, Marvin and I worked together. We were very good friends, and uh, I miss him dearly. And all that I have left now are the memories of the corners of my mind. I thought, wow, this is like a Saturday Night Live skit of a lounge singer uh, thing. Single cheesiest moment on television so far this year, I think, was that moment. <laughs> all right, I agree. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, it, it sounds like it. Um, no matter how you sort of felt about it, it seemed like it was still a worthwhile show to watch. Oh, listen, I, I thought so. I, you know, I, I've been watching for years. I will continue to watch. Uh, and, you know, the, the situation that I watch it in every year is pretty fun. I'm surrounded by hundreds of people. And then I get to go up on a stage and go, hey, everybody, you know, and talk to them about what they think of the show. It's a fun way to watch it, you know. And, uh, and, and it's a much more memorable way to watch it than it is, you know, for instance, I the Golden Globes where I sit in the next room here making notes as things happen because I know I'm going to have to talk about it the next morning. Um, no, it's a, it's a fun show still. I think Seth MacFarlane, who says he will never do it again, he took a lot of heat this year from a lot of different people, mostly negative, although he tweeted yesterday, he said, my cat tells me I did a good job. So he's, you know, 
big thumbs up there. Um, so, uh, you know, he, but he knew it was, it's kind of an impossible gig. I mean, there, no one ever really emerges unscathed unless their name is Billy Crystal, you know? So um, I, I'd like next year to see them maybe go for Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, if they would want the gig, you'd never know if they would actually do it or not, but um, they both make movies. So it makes sense that, you know, they could be there. It's, it's not like, you know, the Johnny Carson years, everyone loved Johnny and he was great at hosting the thing, but he wasn't, had nothing to do with the movies other than interviewing movie stars on his television show. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I think you, you really should have someone who is a movie person hosting it. And they both are, they're fresh, they're funny. Um, they, they, you, you don't get any hotter in the world of comedy than the careers of these two people right now. I mean, they're, they are, they are as on top of the heap as anybody out there. I'd love to see them host. Yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. Uh, all right. Well, I wanted to share something that's been, um, occupying my mind. Well, a lot, but more so, uh, lately than, than, than usual, uh, which is about, um, uh, medical science, life expectancy, and, and cyborgs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and the, the reason is that I've been thinking, I mean, we all kind of know that we enjoy a life expectancy that's much longer than our ancestors. Uh, but I don't think we quite understand just exactly the, the, the scale of it. And a lot of things that I've been sort of exploring and reading has kind of really hit that home uh, lately. There's a, a fact that I put out on Twitter. So if anybody saw it and I'm repeating it, I apologize, but there's more beyond that. Um, so I'll give you an, an example. Every animal that's on the planet, in the course of their, their average lifespan, will have half a billion heartbeats. Every animal, big, small. And the way that that works is that you can have a very tiny little mammal, like the Etruscan shrew, uh, whose heart beats really, really fast. In fact, 835 beats per minute, but yes, only lives for a year. Then you have, you know, uh, a long living animal like a, a giant tortoise, which can live for like 120 years, but its heartbeat is incredibly slow. And so even though as you go through the animal kingdom, you've got large, you get small, you get fast, you get slow, everybody still ends up having an average of half a billion heartbeats. And that's true right across all the, the, the various animals, fish, reptile. The only exception is human beings. And because of medical science, we as a species enjoy more than five times that amount, wow. which is astonishing. And that yeah. comes down to just basically um, uh, innovations like hygiene, soap, the introdu introduction of soap as being a way to control infection, uh, things like learning to control blood loss, which was developed, I think, in either the Second or the First World War, so that you could actually have things like operations. Uh, the Canadian innovation of learning to control uh, and slow down a body's movement through, you know, hypothermia by dropping, you know, temperature. All those things have resulted in us having a significantly longer lifespan than any other species on the planet. In fact, it, recently someone did some calculations and figured out that today, a 74-year-old man today would have as many years left in his life to look forward to as uh, a 30-year-old Neanderthal or, or early man. Right, yeah. Yeah, just, you know, mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's the thing. This is a process that is still going on. 
Okay, so this this change that I'm talking about is the reason I, I, I guess I tie into it so easily is that it's very similar to what we're seeing with computers. In that, as time progresses and we see smaller and faster and more you know advanced computers, our ability to extend our life expectancy continues. In right. fact, it's been averaged that for every day we have expanded that by seven hours. So what? every day that That's goes really, by, how's that possible? Seven that, hours that, that, that builds up pretty fast. That builds up pretty quick. It does. It works out to be, you know, a couple of months every year. So if you stop and think about it, when I was a, a little boy, it was all um, 90 years old was kind of considered to be the, the ceiling. Yeah. If you heard of somebody who lived to be 90 years old. Yeah, they were old. Yeah. Remarkable, right? But today, you have people who are over 100 that are running marathons. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a woman uh, in Europe right now. She's 109 years old. Her problem is that she wants to be on Facebook, but Facebook's settings won't actually go back that far. Right, yes. <laughs> and so when you stop and think about it, at that rate, that makes sense. That over the, you know, the span of a couple of decades that we've actually gained you know, enough that, yes, it does work out to be about seven hours every day. Medical science is continuing to move on our life expectancy. And that's just, that, that is astonishing to me. That that's how it works out. Now, how that ties into a lot of things that I've been thinking about has been the area of cybernetics. Right. So we're now at the, the, the cutting edge point where we're developing uh, the ability to, to introduce things like bionic eyes and, and artificial limbs. And we're starting to do so in a way that's just mind-blowing. Stuff that you want to describe as being futuristic, but you can't because it already exists. Right. And it's there and here today, and it's amazing stuff. So I'll give you an example. Um, just last week in the United States, they approved the very first bionic eye. Now, you know, the way the Americans talk about it, of course, it's as if the bionic eye has finally landed and has arrived, when, in fact, it's been available in Europe for the last couple of years. Right. Uh, often Europe is ahead of everybody. <laughs> But anyways, what I mean by a bionic eye is that this is a case where you can actually take a computer chip and implant it in the back of the very back of the eye. And so a camera would send signals to the back of the eye bypassing all the damage at the front. That's and insane. So it is insane. And it's, it's just a little tiny square like circuit board that goes in the back of the eye. And each one fires off a light signal to duplicate what your eyes would see. Wow. Extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and people who have had this implanted, put in what they're seeing, although it's monochrome, so it's kind of black and white. Right. It's like the early days of computer monitors. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. They're seeing shapes. They can kind of make out uh, letters. But for someone who is blind, it's just astonishing. And where is the lens? Like, is it on their eye? Because so, or is it always just fixed in one direction, or can it move? It's it's my understanding is it's just fixed in one direction. Right. So this would be the equivalent of having like a camera put into your right here uh, or something. The glasses, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the woman that I've seen on video, because it's funny, all the American articles, they have diagrams as if this is in theory, it's now going to be possible. In Europe, they actually have documentaries where they're talking to people who have it. Uh, the one, you know, most of them that I've seen, they just look like pirates. They have sort of an eye patch on one side, and I guess that's where the, the camera input is. But it, it's, it's a remarkable thing to, to understand that this is here and that it's something that's going to be as available as an artificial heart or right. an artificial limb, just it's mind-blowing. 
But recently, we've seen other, uh, and I can give you other examples of how medical science is really kind of pushing things right. along in a way that I think most people aren't really aware of. Uh, and so one of the big things that happened was the war in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Right, right. The war in Afghanistan was really important, not because of politics, not because of anything else, but because of what happened in medical science. Mm -hmm. uh, they had the highest casualty survival rate in history. So 90%, 90% of the soldiers in, in, the, in Afghanistan, in that conflict, who became wounded, survived. And like grievously wounded. Like, you know, this was the, really the first war in which, uh, you know, IUDs and things were, you know, blowing people's limbs off on those, you know, in cars. And they were like, people were coming back absolutely mangled and then pieced back together again. Yeah, and, and doing so, you know, um, receiving sort of, having their legs blown off and, and things that would normally five years ago, these people would die. Right. But thanks to now, and I'm not talking necessarily about innovations that have been, you know, researched in the lab, but just the scenario of having a wartime condition where medics are allowed the freedom to kind of not really care whether a community is going to uh, approve of a particular decision, just right. hands on being able to make decisions. 90% of uh, soldiers that were wounded ended up surviving. And that is the highest in history, going way back to, you know, the Roman Empire, <laughs> all of them, nobody's ever had that kind of success rate. And so what has been incredible about that is not just that that's a great example of showing how medical science has been phenomenally moving forward in a way that you can kind of tangibly grab a hold of, but it inspired the American government to finally invest money in the development of artificial limbs. Right. You had a hundred million dollars being invested and addressing something that I've often felt since I was a little boy. Whenever I've seen somebody with an artificial limb, it's bothered me. Uh, you know, as, as someone who grew up making and building things, having a father who was an engineer, that these things would be so crude and so poorly designed. Whenever I saw somebody with a metal hook or one of those horrible hands that those plastic looked, hands that looked like this, yeah, they're supposed to be skin tone, but they're not quite satisfying and oftentimes things have big ugly knobs on them it's just it, what's going on there so we finally have the first real development of beautifully aesthetically pleasing um, artificial limbs and body parts but also ones that are just phenomenal light year forward in terms of being able to uh, offer lifelike or realistic sort of performance it's just yeah. it's phenomenal no it's 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 uh it's quite something i mean if you even if you think of oscar Pretorius. You know the, the 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 simplicity of the design of his artificial legs, uh, uh, even if he uses them for evil, uh, is amazing. I mean, it's incredible the things that he was able to do with with those, and and uh, um, it is amazing. I mean, when you think back uh, to you know when I was growing up, I mean, it was. Uh, well, I mean, you didn't see very many people with hooks, but that's what people got when they had an artificial limb, an artificial hand. And I do have memories of seeing people with them. Right. And, and for me, I mean, the, the concern for a lot of people who have such um, appliances is that people are going to recoil. They're going to be, you know, afraid. My reaction as a little boy was never one of fear, but sort of an unhappiness that it, it, it was poorly designed. I felt like I was a, I should, I should have become a young Dyson. But what's wrong with this? We yeah, could do right. so yeah, much yeah. better with this, you know? Uh, and so we're, we're finally starting to see people that tackle that. And one man who's been doing a, a fantastic job, his name is Hugh Hare. He's the director of bio 
Mechatronics, I love that word, at uh, MIT. And he does this fantastic trick, okay? If you're lucky enough to go and take a tour, I'm not. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I have a hard time getting people to allow me to kind of do television that talks about this kind of stuff. Believe me, I'd love to. Send me to MIT. I would love to go down there. But <laughs> what he does is he'll take visitors through, and you can see uh, amputees who have the artificial limbs. Uh, he has perfected an ankle, and it's just the most phenomenal thing in terms of its complexity, how well it works, uh, how much it it captures and emulates a living ankle, uh, the range of motion, all those things. Because up until now, people have, you know, sort of, they have the equivalent of hinges <laughs> you know, as joints, that kind of thing. So he does this trick that you go through and you see these amputees who are on treadmills. You see, you know, researchers with their, their tablets and, and doing all sorts of stuff. And, and you realize that these people are moving with such lifelike uh, con convincing sort of form that you could imagine that they could just put on their clothes and walk down the street and no one would know yeah. uh, what's happening beneath their leg. Most of the time if somebody has an artificial leg, you don't know because they're sitting down or they, 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 they've developed, you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, little so. tricks to hide things. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a case where you don't have to hide that stuff. But at the end of the tour, what Hugh will do is he will then reach down, grab his pant legs and pull them both up. And from the, the waist down, what you will see is just this. So I'll, I'll pull up the image here of our fellow guy. Come on. No, screen share does not want to work. Oh. How is that for ruining? It's such a, it's such a cliffhanger now. I know. Okay. I guess when we reloaded you to bring you back, it wasn't going to work. So what can I say? Um, I will put the image <laughs> on our website. Hey, what you're seeing on. is some something that looks like it's from a Ridley Scott film. Wow. Beautiful, wonderfully created, aesthetically pleasing. Uh, in fact, I would even be so bold as to say kind of sexy artificial right. legs. Wow. That that go down. It's not Robocop, it's not, you know, anything that's so so crude, just beautifully done. Uh, let's see if I can I'm gonna keep trying while I keep talking. <laughs> but <laughs> But what's interesting about Hugh uh, in terms of his story is that he said something that, that has just stuck in my mind. And I'm having a hard time kind of playing with it, wrestling with it, and moving it around. And I'll ask you the same sort of thing. Because his story is that he was a uh, mountain climber. Right. And a really good one. In his young, you know, early, late teens, early 20s, he was someone who was going to excel and potentially become one of the great mountain climbers of the world to be able to scale great heights and ended up becoming trapped there was a blizzard and he lost both of his legs to the the hypothermia that resulted so this then became his mission he's now working at MIT he's a fortunate man who gets to help develop the most incredible legs and, and ankles uh, and he is now back scaling mountains and climbing walls but doing so with artificial limbs Wow. And because it still remains his intense passion to do so, you know, I mean, that drive was not only to create a better limb, but was to also get back to being able to climb into the mountains, which for a lot of people, after you've lost your legs doing that kind of stuff, you'd be forgiven if you decided, I'm going to go take up surfing or something else. Right. Right. But he's back to, to climbing the walls. Here's the thing. He has been asked if he could, uh, if, if, if there was a magic lamp, and he opened it and a genie popped out and the genie said, I will give you a wish. What would you wish for? 
uh, could he, would he wish to have his legs back? And the answer is no. Hmm. Now that he has artificial ones, he says the, the thing about his legs is that he can actually swap them out for different designs. Right. So when he goes climbing, he has three different sets of legs just for climbing. There's one that have blades in them that he can cut into ice. There's another set that actually, you know, have more angular, kind of like the feet on a bat that allow him to kind of climb. Right. And so his answer is that to go back to having normal human legs is simply, it would be boring. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and what's key about this is that he doesn't say it in a pejorative sense. Yeah. It's not like someone who has, um, you know, sort of opened up their social life and I would never go back. That's boring. No, he's saying it in a very practical sense in yeah. that if he were to go back to having regular legs, he would miss the, 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 the freedom that comes with being able to have all these different legs that allow him to kind of uh, go beyond just simply what he could do before. Yeah, the but limitations his, of his human body. Yeah, or right. his, his point is that he's come out of this process actually is a better mountain climber than if he had continued on with regular legs. Wow. So that's the interesting point that I'm trying to reach to. I'm giving you all this background so that I can say, here we are. We're reaching very quickly that we're going to be at a point where we can actually not just repair, not just say give someone who's blind vision back, not just give someone who has lost their leg uh, a, a, a more an equal way of being able to walk and, and get around their mobility, but also to augment, to improve and to better. And so would, you know, is that something that we should do? We've reached the point now where we can do it. Is it something that we should do? Right. Sure. I mean, listen, my only, I mean, well, do I have an only? I don't think I do. I think that, I mean, you know, I don't necessarily feel that humans have to live to be 150 years old, quite honestly. I don't know that the world can sustain us all, you know, if we all end up living for decades longer than, you know, uh, we would have, you know, a few decades ago. Yeah, there's um, 7 I, I billion people playing right very now. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, we may be able to improve the physical means of our bodies, but, you know, there. what happens if you have, a, you know, 150-year-olds walking around with, you know, fake legs and new arms and artificial hips, but... Uh, you know, the, none of them have memories left or, you know, all the, the other ravages of old age have taken a hold. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. There's um, one of the other advances that are, are is, is soon going to arrive. There are researchers now who have been working on the problem of Alzheimer's. Right. And they have mice in their labs that, you know, have suffered strokes and have had Alzheimer's sort of recreated in their brains. And they're, they're using various techniques to see if they can solve it in mice, because, of course, that can then scale up to being human. And they have reached the point now where they can implant a computer chip, much like that one in the bionic eye, into the brain of a mouse. And it successfully extends their memory function. Wow. Uh, <laughs> which is astonishing that you what it would do it would allow you to better retain memories and have a better search capability to go back through the memories yeah. in your mind uh, if you're someone right now I have a hard time remembering names in this industry I meet so many people yeah. it's really really tough and so the question is now that the chip exists and although it's not at the point yet where it can be implanted into a human we it's almost an inevitability that it will mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I, I have a terrible time remembering names, and uh, 
Um, yeah, that is, I mean, but the chip would only help you remember new stuff, right? Or is it charging? Is it helping to, like, zapping your brain with something that's keeping it fresh and alive and from going stale? Well, my understanding is, you know, in a case like Alzheimer's, I don't think it's a case that the memories are disappearing, but right. it's just the brain's ability to access it. Is, uh, is, it's kind of right. like having a computer that's damaged. The, the, the files are still in the hard drive. Yeah. Uh, now I'm saying that, and I've yet to... <laughs> I don't know enough about Alzheimer's to be able to say that. I know enough that there's this computer chip and that it does improve memory function. And that if we have a, a chip that you can put into an eye that improves vision, and if you have a chip that you can put into your brain that improves memory, and if we have legs that you could apply or harnesses that would improve your ability to climb or to walk, then we are really reaching the point now where you're seeing, seeing some serious augmentation of what it means to be human moving forward. And that's kind of a, a, a very massive thing to wrap, wrap your head around. Now, to give you a little bit of scale back, um, the, the interesting thing about the word cyborg is that it was developed in the 1960s as a way to describe the technology needed to send astronauts in outer space. Right. That uh, they knew back then that if you were going to send a human being on a long-term travel mission in outer space, you have to deal with the fact that there's no gravity, uh, there are all sorts of effects that happen. When you're in outer space, you can't cry, for example. If you burp, you will burp fluid rather than gas or air because the, the, the gravity is – there's also – the bone marrow density starts to lose. And so the initial idea in the 1960s was that we would have to develop implants to allow human beings to be able to, to travel for a long term. And that may still be the answer as we move forward. It may be inevitable that as humanity leaves Earth and, and continues to populate other places, we may change the very nature of what it means to be human through our own science and technology. But, I mean – the interesting thing about it is that a cyborg, by definition, means any kind of technology used to enhance who you are. And so uh, the, the guys who coined it said, anyone who's wearing eyeglasses, you're a cyborg. Right. Right. If you're wearing braces, you're a cyborg. Right. In fact, you could get to be like Jeff Foxworthy. If you're wearing a wristwatch, yeah, yeah, you just might be a cyborg, right? right. And so it's always that case that, and this is a, a trick that I do, is that when I try to contemplate something that's new, I ask, does it already exist sort of in the past? Right. And so as we try to understand, ooh, you know, these, these chips that increase your memory and artificial legs, well, you know, have we ruined the planet with glasses, for example, or wristwatches or artificial hearts? Is it really that different from, from, from those past things? Right. We've learned to live with those. I don't know. Hmm. Well, I remember when, you know, the, the, the idea of heart transplants was fairly new. People were like, that's it's impossible. How can this possibly be? And, you know, it took a little while, but it has leveled itself out now. And certainly, you know, what you say about uh, the, you know, the, the war in Iraq uh, has, you know, advanced medical treatment of uh, severely injured people uh, probably more in the last 10 years than in the last 25 before. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible. Yeah. The, the advancements that continue, um, that we have face transplants now, yeah. is, is absolutely astonishing. Now we're working on all sorts of different transplants. Hands transplants and things like that, yeah. Hands transplants. I mean, it's still a tricky thing. There's never uh, a silver bullet. There's never an ideal solution. But the advancement that's happening, the rapidity by which we are, are getting these advances, is quite extraordinary. It's odd to me because I find that we tend to celebrate instead the advancements in regular technology. You know, Steve Jobs 
dies and you know we hail him like his he should be on the next $100 bill um, and yet meanwhile you have marine uh, paramedics who are saving 90% of, of casualties out there and there's very little celebration about that and right. I think sometimes our priorities are a little off you know we celebrate Steve Jobs mainly because he made a crap load of money and he can he created the iPad yeah important stuff that is very yeah. important stuff I can yeah. play solitaire in my bed if I want to anytime Anywhere, take it on the train. Yeah. And, and Hugh Hare is a man who's reinvented the ankle. But, you know, uh, very few people sort of uh, celebrate. And now he's, uh, I say that there are lots of articles on him. Time Magazine has done a great deal on him and such. But I don't find that as much of an appreciation or celebration of it. And medical science just in general, uh, how much it has really advanced us over the years, it's, it's just phenomenal. But that's something to consider as we move forward, just how things are going to change. Uh, we're going to see a lot of this by the end of the year because Google Glass, the uh, invention that Google's come up with, they look like glasses, and they yeah. have a built-in camera and a computer and, and put all sorts of stuff on your vision. It's not an implant, but yet it's very much the same thing. Right. And it will give advantages to people who can afford it that other people can't. That's right. That may be it. Yeah. Hey, all you zombies this this week. We are not going. This this podcast will not be 150 years long. No, it will not. No, it will um, not. No, but by all means, uh, go to our website, heyallyouzombies.com. And if you have input, we'd love to hear it. Uh, if you think that you are a cyborg in a very clever way, I would love to hear that. Tell us why you might be a cyborg. Well, I'm going to uh, uh, put up some videos of Ravine on HeyAllYouZombies.com as well because I feel like people need to be familiar with Ravine the Impossibleist. And while we were on here uh, on Facebook, I said, hey, does anybody remember Ravine? And someone uh, um, wrote in and said that he is a friend of a friend and that he lives in Las Vegas right now and he is suffering from dementia right now. He's, oh. he's in poor health with some dementia. But... Uh, but uh, Ravine is still alive, and I have very, very fond memories of those shows. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll, I'll check out his videos then. Yeah. We'll see. That's, right. the, that's the great thing, you know, when you, you have a career like that, uh, you know, what you give to the world lives on. It's documented. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, next week, more zombie talk. <laughs> <laughs>